This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter 20 Both Kedal and Torum spun and moved into position on either side of the entrance to protect me and Jass. I could hear the scraping of boots upon the stone floor of the passageway, but it was loud, and I realized it was hundreds of boots. The first undead that emerged from the passageway, the first undead I had actually ever seen close up, was a rotted, festering young man. He had probably only been in his late teens when he was turned. He wore a simple linen shirt and breeches, much like the clothes Xavier and I wore when we worked on the family farm. I blasted him with the shaft of air, and he flew back into the passageway. He emerged moments later, impaled on a pike, but he was still walking, and behind him was the first wave of undead. This first wave carried pikes. I pulled Jass behind me as Torum and Kadal closed ranks to my left and right just ahead of me. This left me with a relatively clear view of the first wave of undead coming through the passageway. The necromancer hadn't bothered to equip his soldiers with armor, only weapons. These walking corpses were much like the archers I'd seen before. They had the unmistakable pallor of death, their skin pale and almost green, being devoid of living blood. They wore remnants of the clothes they wore in life, a butcher's apron, a merchant's robes, ordinary clothes you might see on people on an ordinary day in any town or city, but these clothes were tatters. They were torn and moldering, the seams having come undone long ago. The force of undeath must preserve the corpses, but not their clothes. They could be decades old, or more. Most unsettling was the lack of sound. Sure, their feet made scraping noises as they shuffled along the stone floor, but I could hear no breathing, nor any sounds of exertion, no grunts, no battle cries, no groans. Only the sound of shuffling feet. I summoned the force of bolstering and unleashed the force of air, much in the same way I made the shield while aboard the scarab, but this time I directed the rock-hard air towards the passageway. I held my hands out before me and took a single determined step toward the undead and pushed with all my might. I knocked the first two pikemen back into their undead comrades, causing an almost comical domino effect. The single undead vanguard we had seen flailed helplessly on the pike upon which he was impaled as it rose and lifted him off the ground for a brief moment. Four or five ranks of undead fell, one rank after the next. But this only slowed them down. Now that my view was clearer still, I could see that we were facing far more undead than the four of us could ever manage. Kadal and Torum moved to either side of the passageway and began thrusting their swords into the prone, struggling undead. They impaled chests, heads, necks, causing a nauseating, blackened liquid to emerge from each wound. But the undead pikemen showed no signs of injury. They kept struggling, trying to regain their footing. All the while, more undead, this time armed with swords, began climbing over and trotting upon their prone and struggling comrades. My shield spell was able to stop their advance to a point, 
but soon more undead swordsmen began climbing over those stalled before them. Soon the whole passageway became a mass of dead, clamoring post-humanity. Kidal and Torum fought furiously, each slammed against the observation platform's rear wall by the edges of my spell. They cut and slashed with speed and accuracy. I noted that both Kidal and Torum were quite expert with a long blade. When ordinary wounds, which would cripple any living opponent, didn't work, they aimed for the head and neck. Torum even managed to decapitate one pikeman, but the body kept moving, kept trying to stand. They're not dying, Torum shouted. Well, they are already dead, I shouted back, immediately regretting my witty quip. My shield spell fluttered, and I regained my concentration, stabilizing it again. It was then that I realized I couldn't hold the spell much longer. While mages expend no personal energy to cast spells, it is taxing on our minds. We must maintain images of the symbols within our minds to keep control of the forces, and this can be mentally exhausting, especially for a sustained spell like this. I had to make a choice, either end the spell or risk losing control of the forces, which could be catastrophic. It became clear that we were not going to win this day. Jass! I shouted. Look over the edge! Can we escape? I again felt my air shield waver and flutter. I concentrated again on the spell to stabilize it. It's a drop straight down! Hundreds of feet! No way to climb down! It's smooth like a cliff face! Jass shouted back. I looked back at her and I began to lose control of my spell again. But this time I knew I couldn't control the forces I had mustered. I ended the spell. Mandite! Both Kidal and Torum shouted, now realizing that my spell had failed. I found it difficult to concentrate and looked about for another way to escape. Jas stepped in front of me, loudly shouting the rhymes of the force of fire. It was a rudimentary spell at best, but effective. Fire, hot and fierce, rushed from Jas's outstretched palms. The blast toppled three or four ranks of undead and shot down the passageway. Tendrils of the flame curled and rebounded from the edges of the passageway, and Torm and Kadal quickly backpedaled to avoid being burned. The flame was unfocused and diffuse, so it wasn't hot enough to ignite the flesh of the undead, but it was hot enough to ignite their clothing. Row after row after row of undead warriors struggled to stand as their tattered clothing erupted into flames. Kadal and Torm cheered, as did I. Then we realized that the undead didn't seem to notice they were being set aflame. They continued their advance. The sickening sweet smell of burning human flesh filled the observation platform. The undead continued their advance, parting to the left and right of Jass's fire spell, forcing Kadal and Torum into their respective corners. Then everything stopped. Fire and smoke billowed through the passageway and onto the platform. But the undead stood motionless, slowly burning with hisses and pops. Jas sagged back with exhaustion, and I caught her, holding her upright. The air became thick with that sickening sweet smoke. I began choking and coughing. Jas succumbed too, and I let her fall to the floor. There is no need for more bloodshed, friends. A young man's voice emerged from beyond the flame and smoke of the passageway. It was the voice of a northerner, perhaps someone from Hiko Hasmert, or further north. 
Torm and Cadal continued hacking at the undead, occasionally knocking one down. But I could tell they were near exhaustion. Cadal was cursing with each blade strike. Torm was far more conservative with his efforts, his decades of warfare having taught him well. If you surrender peaceably, I will take you prisoner. You will be well treated until your ransoms are paid. Then I will release you. To that I give you my word, the voice said. I looked down at Jas. She was sitting before me, panting with the strain of her rather impressive fire spell. Her face was a mask of hatred and terror. I rested a hand on her shoulder. She shook her head. Clearly, she did not want to surrender to this necromancer, the man who took and killed her mother. I didn't want to do it either. If this necromancer's word was to be believed, which was doubtful, we would become pawns, interfering with the actions of the Lord Field Marshal and the Duke. What concessions would they have to make to gain our release, and would they be willing to make any concessions? Worse still, what if the necromancer was lying? Would we end up footmen in his undead army, or worse? I didn't know what to do, but I did know that I didn't want to die, and that prospect seemed imminent. Better to live and fight another day, Jas, I said. Kidal and Torum must have shared the same sentiment, or they were just too exhausted to continue fighting. Though I could no longer see them through the mass of undead, I heard their swords clatter to the stone floor. Very good. Very good, my friends. I'm bringing forth minions with manacles. These are just a precaution until I know you are genuinely taking my bargain, the voice said. We heard more shuffling and the quiet clanking of chains as the sea of undead parted. Chapter 21 While undead do smell foul... They only smell a bit like rotting flesh. More than anything, they smell like horrible body odor. Imagine a dozen laborers working day and night for months at a time, but they never bathe. And when they rest, the humidity shoots up, causing every mold, every germ, and every fungus to grow and flourish. I do not know what body processes still worked within the undead, but some certainly worked. They were able to walk and fight. They were able to follow commands, though I do not know how our folk invade those commands, and all this would remain a mystery for some time. Kidal had taken to breathing through his mouth, but I didn't think that tactic had worked well for him, as I could see sweat beating on his face, and he was swallowing saliva like a man preparing to vomit. For myself, I kept my breathing shallow, and while I felt nauseated, I was able to manage. Torum was not shy about expressing his displeasure of the stench. While he didn't speak, his grunting, huffing, and gagging made it all too clear that he was not accustomed to such smells either. Jas, on the other hand, was unfazed by the odor. Though her eyes were devoid of emotion, her mouth formed a line that indicated absolute hatred but patience. I had never in my life been manacled. Even when I was on the run after my exile— I managed to avoid capture. I realized I don't like manacles. First, there's the physical discomfort. Most of us don't realize how often we use our hands. 
We scratch our noses, even pick our noses, brush stray eyelashes out of our eyes. But when you've lost the use of your hands, you realize we are constantly itching and scratching ourselves like monkeys. Over time, this discomfort faded. Then there's the actual discomfort of the manacles. In this case, our chains had been fastened to stakes set into the stone over our heads. You try to hold up your arms, then your muscles get tired, and this happens alarmingly fast. So you let your arms hang, suspended by your manacled wrists. This, of course, causes the metal edges of the manacles to dig into your flesh. Apparently, jailers or the blacksmiths they employ don't bother filing the burrs off of the cuffs. So you're fighting this constant battle of discomfort. One minute you're giving your wrists a rest by holding up your arms until your muscles start to cramp. Then you're feeling the metal cuffs gradually slicing and chafing your wrists. Of course, you try to reposition them so the metal has fresh flesh to dig into, giving your wounds a moment of respite. But most disconcerting of all is the helplessness. More than anything, this is the real punishment of being immobilized. Our arms and hands are our most natural tools of defense. We use them from an early age when play fighting with our friends. We cross them over our chests when we're feeling defensive, whether from physical attack or emotional. We use them to shield our eyes when there's broken glass or bright light. The psychological toll of being manacled cannot be overstated. It is, in its own way, torture. The four of us hung from our arms in the very large cavern of the first turn in the passageway. The same cavern Kadal peeked into when we first entered the watch cave complex. Clearly, the necromancer had been concealing himself and his undead soldiers here, but Kadal didn't think to check for a company of undead and invisible soldiers. How could he have known? I hadn't thought of it, and I'm a mage. As I stood there, trying to gain some small level of comfort, I tried to work out how he created that spell. Many non-magical folk assume mages can make themselves invisible, but the fact is, I didn't know any mages who could do it, and I certainly couldn't myself. Furthermore, I couldn't figure out how he'd done it. I suppose one could make oneself invisible to a single person using the force of mind. This would be like a personal illusion, and it would certainly be possible. It was something I would research should I survive this predicament. But that's not what the necromancer did. It made me wonder if there were more forces of which I was not aware—not godlike forces like space-time or undeath. No, there might simply be a force of light. I considered that. It might be a specialized use of the force of fire, but I realized such a thing was beyond that force. Fire was anxious and restless, and I imagined being invisible would take a far more serene spell. Though I didn't know fire well, I knew it well enough to know its limitations, and manipulating light itself was one of them. But what if there was a force that manipulated light? Now, in hindsight, it seemed like a very logical hole in our repertoire as mages. We could use the force of air to silence ourselves, though it required a delicate and fastidious touch to do so. But invisibility was another matter entirely. It now seemed so natural for such a force of light to exist, but the idea had never occurred to me until now. 
while studying at the Collegium, I had never even heard mention of such a force, but it did make sense that it would exist. Then the necromancer walked into the cave, breaking my train of thought. There had been four undead swordsmen standing near the cave entrance, and as we heard his footsteps, they parted to make way. As he walked in, I noted that he looked nothing like Kedal's description of Marwaleth. He was short and rather stocky and pale. His hair was long, bushy, and fiery red, as was his long beard. In fact, he looked like many of the men I grew up knowing in Ikoha Smirt. He was definitely a northerner. He was a bit rotund, but comfortable in his mage's robes, which were black with red accents. "'I know you were sent by the Duke. That much is obvious,' he started. "'I'm assuming you were his backup plan, yes?' None of us answered. Jas, who was to my right, hissed something I couldn't quite understand, but it sounded like one of the forces rhymes. The necromancer took note of it as well and approached her. He was barely taller than Jas. "'You must be an apprentice mage,' he said. She didn't answer, only staring at him with those emotionless eyes. Then he looked down the line, first at me, then Kadal, and finally Torum. He took a step and stood before me, his hands behind his back. "'And you must be the mage mentor, yes?' he asked. I gave him a slight nod. "'Very good,' he said. Then he walked before Kadal. "'You're not of the Duke's army, are you?' Kadal looked straight ahead with a stoic expression, remaining silent, though beads of sweat covered his head and he swallowed frequently. But I didn't think that was due to fear.' He was trying not to vomit, as it would inevitably end up all over his chest and stomach. A mercenary, perhaps, he said. No, I don't think so. But you're good with a blade. Too good for a petty thief or a typical bravo. The necromancer wagged his finger at him, saying, You're a mystery yet to be unraveled. Then he stood before Torum. Either Torum played a good game or the stench had so affected him that he couldn't even concentrate on what our foe said. He was simply ignoring him, and trying, like Kidal, not to vomit. Now you are a soldier, definitely one of two. Brothers, perhaps. We found your comrade dead on the stairway, I'm afraid, he said. But there was no mention of Dale. She must have gotten far enough away to evade capture, or so I'd hoped. "'My name is Marwaleth,' he said, walking away. "'You may consider me your host. "'I've summoned a messenger to take my demands to your duke "'or his commander in the field. "'Can any of you tell me his name?' "'He's certainly with that army my minions have been chasing around the steps. "'I should like to address my message to the right man. "'Anyone?' "'Address it to the Lord Field Marshal,' I said.' "'I'm afraid I don't know the current Lord Field Marshal's name. "'I haven't kept up with current Eldamy politics. "'I remember Lord Field Marshal Brassad. "'But I'm sure he's long dead,' Marwilith said. "'He is. He died almost two centuries ago,' I said. "'The current Field Marshal is Bramstone.' "'Not familiar with the name,' he said, smiling. "'Thank you for your cooperation. "'The sooner he receives the message, the sooner you'll be freed.' And then he left the cavern, the undead guards parting the way for him. Time dragged on. 
Out of sheer boredom, I decided to examine my surroundings. As Dale had mentioned, there was an enormous hole in the side of the mountain opening up this cavern to the sky. The floor of the cavern was littered with old bones. Some I recognized. Cows, femurs, and skulls. Deer and bear, I think. But there was also what appeared to be human bones mixed in the clutter. Some were very old, as they'd turned the color of straw or wood. There were larger bones as well, from animals I could not identify. Then I noticed in the far corner there was something, some sort of tall object, a bit taller than me, that was covered with a large gray cloth. I summoned the force of magic and reached out. I could sense the thin, intricate strands of that same old magic I'd sensed in the gigantic spyglass in the observation chamber and the mirror safely hidden in my cottage. In fact, from the shape I could make out from the way the cloth fell, that might be one of those mirrors as well. It was too far for me to see much of the enchantment, but it was very old and very strong, and it seemed strangely familiar, though I couldn't fathom why. None of us dared speak of Dale, for we didn't know if Marwileth could hear our whispers through the ears of our undead guards. By nightfall, the stench of undead had faded. The four guardsmen at the entrance managed to maintain a faint shadow of a smell, but now it just smelled like the trash heap behind a busy tavern, the food rotting slowly away. If you would like to find out more about my writing, go to stewvenable.com.